0: Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, we're looking at uh, Paul's sermon in Athens. Now, he has spent some time in uh, Thessalonica, and he got kicked out. And he went to the Bereans, and uh, they studied the scripture, and they heard what he said, and he had a great, fruitful ministry there. But the Thessalonicans tracked him down and, and caused trouble in Berea and kicked him out. And so they sent him to Athens, uh, Athens is one of those places that I want to go. Uh, I, I, there are about a million places I want to go, and I don't think I'm going to be able to make them all, but Athens is one of those where I want to go. I've got a couple of pictures to kind of give you an idea of what he was doing in Athens, or where he was. This first picture, if, if we're working, there we go. Uh, what you're looking at there in the middle left of the picture, the ruins... That would be the agora or the marketplace. We're going to read about Paul preaching in the marketplace, talking to people. That's where he would have been. That, that long building on the right is uh, called the Stoa of somebody. I forgot the name. It's rebuilt. That's not original, it didn't last. They rebuilt that in the 1950s to match um, what was there. Uh, and so go back, please, Pat. Uh, so that's where he would have been preaching. He would have seen, as he stood in the marketplace, as, as he talks about here, he would have seen that to his right. Now, if, if the, the way we're looking at this picture, kind of to our left and behind us, if we were, you know, if we were standing between the picture and what I'm talking about, to the, uh, to the left behind us and directly behind us is the next picture. So now we kind of turn around and look at the picture and we see the Acropolis of Greece, of, of Athens. Uh, the Parthenon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, is the, the main structure you sit up there, uh, see up there. The government of Athens sat right there. That little outcropping of rock to the front of it is Mars Hill or the uh, Areopagus is what we're going to see here. That's where Paul gave this sermon that we're going to look at this morning. All of that was there when Paul was there, except it was much nicer. Uh, It hadn't all fallen in. Athens is the cradle, was the cradle, of Western civilization. If we have a westernized thought, it comes from Athens. Uh, Democratic politics, philosophy... City grids, architecture, cultural values, art, these all flowed out of Athens. Uh, when Rome took over the, the known world, they didn't mess with Athens. They left Athens alone. It was still a free city in Rome. As a matter of fact, all the, the Roman gods that, the, that uh, they talk about and, and they would use names like Jupiter, our, our planets... Jupiter, Mars, uh, the others. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to try this morning. I know there are eight of them. Poor Pluto. Uh, it, all those names were Roman gods. But you know where they got their gods? Athens. You know where they got their culture? Athens. You know where they got the Democratic Senate? Athens. They just got everything from Athens. Paul visits Athens 500 years past Athens Prime. All those buildings you saw uh, that were demolished and torn down and, and fallen because of earthquakes and disrepair, those were built uh, around 400s to 500, uh, 400 to 500 to 400 BC. Somewhere in the middle there. Notice too, Paul is no longer in Macedonia. He is in uh, what's called Achaia. Uh, he's in a different province. Uh, so Paul, what you doing? You were supposed to go to Macedonia. Well, Luke gives us no indication, so we're not going to spend any time on this. No indication he's out of God's will. Uh, he was forced out of those places where he was uh, supposed to be ministering, but it looks like God is using the circumstances to get him in other places, and in this case, to the cradle of civilization. You're going to come across two different groups this morning, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh they are the main holders of the, the philosophical beliefs of Athens of this day. And, and we'll read where, he, where Paul is talking to them. Uh, Epicureans were agnostics. If there were gods, they didn't get involved in daily life. The Stoics were pantheists. God is in everything and everywhere. So, no God, uh, no God in nothing, every God in everything. That's their two views. Epicureans thought the end of life, the the purpose of life was pleasure, but not pleasure you had to work for, not, it was just, you know, simple satisfaction. Uh, Stoics were after self-dependence, they got their name, Epicureans got their names, their name from Epicurus, the guy who uh, invented the philosophy. Stoics got their name from, I told you that building, the stoa, stoa are columns, they talked and taught among those columns among the stoa so they got to be called stoics their their boss man was zeno but that doesn't matter they, they weren't called zenoics the big thing you need to know about these two groups is neither of them believed in a resurrection certainly no physical resurrection now the stoics will allow for a soul resurrection the the soul being eternal the the epicureans didn't man when you dead you done uh when uh, the, there was a saying of, that was accredited to Mars uh, uh, Apollo in in Greece, uh, that when when the dust sucks up your blood, I'll paraphrase, you ain't coming back. And that was the that was what they believed. So this is the culture that Paul is now taking the gospel into. So we need to hear this morning that the gospel is for everyone. And we must be prepared to share it in an increasingly pagan and hostile world. We must be prepared to do that. And this morning, we see that preparation in Paul's sermon. And that's what we're going to look at. So look at me, Look at with me Acts 17, 16 through 34. Uh, Paul in Athens. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, What is this ignorant show off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Luke makes a funny here and says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, We'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see here this, this sermon that he preaches, this, this, this evangelistic presenta- presentation that he gives In the Areopagus, but let's look at some of his sermon prep. uh, What led up to this? Paul is waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens, and he's he's just doing a little tourism uh, deal. He's walking around, and it says he is greatly distressed by the idols that he sees. This distress, this word distress, is actually paroxysm. You remember that was the word that that he and Barnabas had when they split up. The paroxysms. He is feeling the same thing now and he's feeling these paroxysms this distress over the lostness of the people at Athens. He sees gods, uh, false gods and idols everywhere. Everywhere he looks and that is no exaggeration at all from the pen of Luke. That's what Athens was and it still is if you go today because they've saved so much of been able to save so much of their history, you can still find altars and gods and idols all over the place. So he gets there, he's, he's having these paroxysms over the lostness, he's deeply distressed, so he does what he always does, the synagogue strategy. He goes to the synagogue with the Jews and reasoned with those who worshipped God. He goes first to the people about whom he has knowledge. He goes to the people he knows first. He, that's his bread and butter. Uh, he's a, a Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee. He knows the law. He knows the scriptures. And his strategy is, go to them first. I know these folks. I can begin with the scriptures and take them to Jesus. The next place he goes, he goes to the synagogue. Then he says, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. This was a marketplace. The Agora, the first picture that I showed you, not just for goods. You could go and you could buy stuff, but it was a marketplace of ideas. This was Athens, and Luke was not exaggerating again when he said, all they like to do is sit around and talk about things, new things. Oh, you heard something new? Tell me. Let's gossip about the latest philosophy. They loved that sort of thing, so this was a marketplace of ideas. It was a place that he knew he could go and find people doing their everyday thing, but also asking everyday questions, and he knew he had the answers. So he's got first with the synagogue strategy, he's got knowledge of people, but now he goes then to the marketplace because he has knowledge of location. He knows this will be an opportunity, this will be a place that I can go and I can share the gospel because they're going to want to hear new ideas. They like to talk about it in this marketplace of ideas. And then we see some of the Epicurean, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. And some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? So he got pagan questions. He got these questions, and they they call him a seed picker. We we say, uh, we translated it here, um, ignorant show-off. The word they used was seed picker. And the image they had was this little bird flitting from philosophy to philosophy, picking. I'll take this little bit of this philosophy, and I'll take this little bit of this philosophy, and I'll take this little bit of this philosophy, and then I'll, I'll string them together, and I'll sound greatly important. I'll make all these long sentences with all these big words, and people will be flabbergasted at my intelligence and my acumen and my abilities, and, and, and they're saying... Boy, I don't know what he's talking about. He's just picking little things out and trying to impress us. They weren't impressed. But Paul here has a knowledge of culture. He knew that here was where he is going to possibly be accused. But because of their questions, because of their questioning, they're going to want to hear more. Paul was no dummy. He knew people, he knew locations, and he knew culture. And these are things that as we take the gospel to the world, we have to know. Do you know did you know that International Mission Board missionaries, our IMB missionaries, spend about two years in language school before they go to the, uh, the field where they're going to be? Part of language school... Much of language school is not just learning the language, but learning the culture, learning about the place they're going to go, knowing the location, knowing the people, and knowing how to fit into the culture in order to reach the most people possible. That's what we see Paul doing right here in his little sermon prep. The whole purpose of Luke recording this story, this, this, this little trip, this diversion, in Athens, seems to be to share the sermon that's coming up. paul he, He's not interested in uh, Epicurean philosophy or Stoic philosophy or anything like that. He is interested in sharing this sermon. This is Paul's second sermon. I said last week I wasn't sure, then I changed it to second sermon. It's his second sermon. The first sermon was his sermon to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. It was a Jewish sermon to a Jew, Jewish group. This is a pagan oriented sermon to a pagan oriented group and then the third and final sermon we'll see from Paul later on is a Christian sermon to a Christian group. Luke is giving us three clear examples and we're going to look at the pagan sermon and we'll talk about why when we get to the end. So first part of his sermon Paul makes a personal connection verses 22 through 23. He, he says, you know what, I've looked around, I see you're extremely religious. This is acknowledgement, but this isn't quite a compliment. When, when he says extremely religious, another way to translate that, translate that word is superstitious. I see you are extremely superstitious, which they wouldn't have minded too much they got it you know they well we're going to sacrifice to all the gods just in case i mean we're going to build altars to all of them because you never know which ones i mean and he's going to make the point you even got the one to the unknown god you are covering all of your bases y'all you you you're doing all this what he's doing by this acknowledgement by saying i've been around your city i've spent time here i've gotten to know uh, the people the location and the culture he is building rapport with the people he's about to share the gospel with. He is showing true interest in them. For Paul, it was not just an academic exercise or even a religious exercise to go through the motions of evangelism. It was a heart burden for these people to come to know Christ. So Paul is giving us an example of how to begin an evangelistic uh, opportunity. And he says, I looked around and I saw these unknown, uh, these, these uh, altars to unknown gods. Some of them, it says, were even inscribed to an unknown god. There are two good options for what he saw, and he probably saw both of them. The first one was, over time, a lot of the altars, because of earthquakes and other things, would get torn down, they'd get broken and they might lose the inscription that said what that altar was for. So folks would come along behind them and say, well, we've got to b- rebuild the altar to make the God happy. But who was this for? Was this Zeus? Was this Athena? Was this, which one was, it was like, I don't remember. Okay, well, here's unknown God. <laughs> and they'd carve it up and put unknown God on there. Just to make the God happy. See, we did it. Oh, we didn't know who you were, but we got you an altar, right? The second way, Uh, The second unknown altar he would have seen probably would have not have had description uh, inscriptions but he would have seen them anyway. There was a fellow by the name of Epidemides, I'm sorry Epimenides, Epimenides. If you want to name your child that, go for it. Um, Epimenides. There was this plague that was in Athens long time ago. It's more of a myth than history, but they liked the story. Uh, parts of it are true. Epimenides was going to fix the plague and he said, Here's what you do. He took a whole bunch of sheep onto the Areopagus where Paul was preaching. He let all the sheep go and he said, Wherever the sheep lies down, build an altar right there. And so in the evening, when all the sheep started laying down, and I'm assuming the poor sheep thought he was going to rest and instead he got his eternal rest, um, they built an altar. So all over Athens, you had these uh, altars, and they didn't know which god they were trying to appease. Epimenides said, you're pretty much going to cover all of them this way. Lo and behold, the plague lifted, everybody thought, yay, Epimenides, and they got to rejoice for what he had done. So when he mentions, you've been worshiping, you even worship an unknown god, the Athenians, the... uh, Areopagites, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah, we've got them all over the place, because you know about Epimenides, uh, we're going to talk about him again in in a minute. He says, to an unknown God, he says, "I, I found all these altars, verse 23, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. What you worship in ignorance, these unknown gods, let me tell you about the God you don't know. And he begins to point out what's lacking in their religion. Point out what's lacking in their faith. Point out what's lacking in their lives. And he presents this picture, paints this picture of God... First, God the creator in verses 24 through 29, and then God the judge in verses 30 through 31. God the creator first, though, he says in 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. He doesn't live in these idols that you've created. Uh, he, he's not served by human hands. But look, the, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes back to creation with these folks. He knows he can't start any later than that. He's got to get these people to understand the beginning. They worship, they believed uh, the the original Athenians, the the first people who settled in that area, they believed that they literally just grew out of the dirt. And they they had a word for it. They were so, uh, I, I don't remember what the word was, but... Uh, I can give an example of it in real life. Uh, when we lived in Galveston for a little while, uh, you were either BOI or you weren't. BOI, born on the island. And if you weren't BOI, you might be a nice person, but you weren't BOI. They had a phrase for each other, and everybody knew the BOIs. And if you might have an opinion, and here's your opinion. You're BOI? Oh, that's a much better opinion than I thought. Oh, you're not... Um, that was their view. They thought, we don't have a creator. We grew from the dirt. We just, we just appeared. The gods. I don't know. Not didn't create them. That's what oh, they thought. And he says, no, i got to start at the beginning here. I also have to start with monotheism. Y'all got all these gods. Let me p- tell you about the one God who created everything, the one creator God. He is, he's beginning to break down some of their beliefs and correct them. And he tells them a creator doesn't need a shrine or man's help. A creator doesn't need you to build an idol to him. A creator doesn't need you to make sacrifices to feed him, bring fruit and vegetables to put on the altar so he can eat. He doesn't need your temple prostitution to satisfy him or her. He doesn't need any of those things. He doesn't need people. He is getting right here to the sovereignty of of God. Now, who would not want to hear about the sovereignty of God of the two groups that we just talked about? The Epicureans. If God exists, if there are gods, they don't work in the lives of people. And Paul is saying, yeah, he, he, he doesn't need your help. He is, he is sovereign. And He's going to go on to say later on that he, from one man, he made everything. He, created, uh, he, he set the borders of countries. All these things, God is intimately involved because he is sovereign. And then he goes on to say, not only did he create, but he started with one man. Verse 25, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Verse 26, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. He started with one man to, to make all nations. So we're going back, we're seeing the sovereignty he was talking about, but now he's talking about that man has necessary accountability to God. The Stoics said God's in everything. There's no accountability to the gods. They're everywhere, they're in it all, they're in us, no big deal. And, and, and Paul is saying no, no, he's sovereign, he created, and therefore you owe him accountability. And then in order to prove his point, he quotes their own philosophers. Verse 27, he did this so they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Okay, Epicureans, God's involved. Stoics, he's not in everything. He's not far from us, but he's not in everything. You don't have him. He's breaking down their beliefs. And he quotes their philosophers. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's the first quote from uh, uh, an Athenian philosopher. That quote was from Epimenides, the same guy who sent the sheep and they had all the altars. So they would have known this fella. he just connected two of what we're doing in Athens here to one guy that we really venerate. Maybe he's not a seed picker. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Then he quotes another fellow when he says, um, For we are also his his offspring. Paul is showing a basic understanding of what they believe, but he is also showing points of agreement. It is not bad to talk to someone who isn't a believer and say to them, when they say something like, Well, I don't believe in a God that kills people willy-nilly like on 9-11, and we get to say, you know, I don't believe in that God either. I believe in sin that causes those sorts of problems, but I don't believe in a God that just kills willy-nilly either. That's not the God I worship. That's not the God of the Bible. So we we have these points of agreement. So he tells the Stoics, God isn't in everything. He sets boundaries, and therefore he's involved, Epicureans. People who are listening to me, Paul says... You've got this version of God, but the God you don't know is bigger than the gods you think you do. But Paul has to keep going. Now, he's got him at creation. He's moved through time uh, and said, God's done all these things. One man created the nations, set up the boundaries, involved in all of it. Even your philosophers, they understand this, but, verses 30 and 31, God is also a judge, Since we're God's offspring in 29, he says, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. God is not a marble statue. God is not the Parthenon, as beautiful as it would have been. And and here's the incredible thing about him sharing this message. I see him motioning, and it would have been over his left shoulder probably, Or they may have been sitting on the hill as he was talking to them, and there's the Parthenon to his right, and him saying, God doesn't live there. God's not in that statue. God's not in that building. That does not mean God doesn't exist. And he says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay? God has been patient with their ignorance, he says. How many of you like to be called ignorant? Uh And how many of you really, really smart people really, really like to be called ignorant? Uh See? And Paul just says, in a very nice way, to these learned men sitting on this hill, who, they were the Supreme Court of Athens. They were the ones that for hundreds of years had made decisions, all the way up to and including capital punishment decisions and paul says for a long time god has overlooked y'all's ignorance maybe not the best way to continue we would say oh well we just offended somebody y'all the gospel offends let's get over that real quick the gospel always offends We serve an exclusive Savior who commands exclusivity in salvation. We can't go into the world and say, I know what you believe, but let's blend it with Jesus and you'll be okay. That's not what we preach. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, reject everything up to and including your family to follow Jesus. That is an exclusive gospel, and that is offensive to most people. So Paul's not concerned about being offensive or not being offensive. He tells him, God has been patient with your ignorance. But now, at this point, that unknown God you've worshipped has made himself known. I am telling you about him. No longer are you ignorant. A lot of people, when they attempt to trip up Christians, will say, well, what about all the people who've never heard the gospel? What about them? Where are they going to go? Yeah, It's a great question, and I hope I get an answer to that someday when I go to heaven. But my only real response to the, someone who asks that question is, I understand that question, and I can't answer it. But what I can say is you are not ignorant of it. You have heard, so what are you going to do with it? I can't fix the past. We can only look at the present. What are you going to do with the knowledge you have? And that's what Paul is telling them here. The unknown God is now known. And here's where Paul starts getting into some uh, deep water. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, in verse 30, God now commands all people everywhere to Repent. It says repentance is required. Repentance from ignorance is required. Ignorance is a cardinal sin for the Greeks. There is no excuse for ignorance that they would say. We are the cradle of civilization. They didn't quite understand it that way, but they were pretty high on themselves. They understood that everybody looked to them for smarts. And they said, we are not ignorant, Paul, seed picker. We have nothing to repent from. When it comes to ignorance. But what he says is you do have to repent. You have to repent of your ignorance. This is strike one in Paul's gospel presentation. Repentance from ignorance is required. God's overlooked it but now he is not going to because you have the truth. Verse 31 he continues. and He says because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. Set a day, Greeks saw time as cyclical, not linear. So the idea of setting a time, no, we, it, and they didn't necessarily believe, they, they didn't believe in uh, resurrection, it wasn't um, Shirley MacLaine. Reincarnation, thank you. They didn't believe in reincarnation either, uh, it wasn't that, they just believed that there was never anything truly set, uh, okay, we can fix it. Well, you know, we can, you know, we'll change it later. Um, they believed in this cyclical time, so he says that God has set a day. Okay, so wait a minute. God's going to judge. He's sovereign. He's involved. He's going to set a day. Uh, that's that's not a God who's just kind of in everything, but not not really doing anything. So he's still whacking those limbs off of uh, the Epicurean and the Stoic trees. Strike two. And the second half of verse 32. He's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. From one man he created, and now from one man who he has appointed. And he says he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Resurrection, Paul? Nah. Strike three. As far as the gospel presentation is concerned, Paul's out. They they might, okay, repentance, you're you're kind of, I don't know about that. Set Set a day, linear time, sovereignty? No, I don't think so. Resurrection? All right, boy, you crazy. You are a seed picker, you are a moron. They would not have heard anymore. Well, and sadly, that's that's what we see. Verses thirty-two, verse thirty-two. When we when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, "We'd like to hear him uh, hear you again about this." So Paul left their presence. So what was the sermon result here in verses thirty-two through thirty-four? Well, first of all, we go back. We have no record of synagogue converts. He went to synagogue first. Synagogue strategy: the people he knows. We don't see any converts. Then he goes to the marketplace, uh, the, this uh, uh, knowledge of the location. Where can I talk to the most people and, and have the most people hear me? No, no marketplace converts that we have a record of. And then he ends up at the high court of, of Athens, the, the Sanhedrin of Athens. And he gets ridiculed. You're an idiot. We don't want to hear this. This is crazy. They ridiculed him. He gets mild curiosity. We'd like to hear from you again about this. That was probably, hey, can you call me back? Meaning, when I see your number on caller ID, I ain't answering it. So don't call me back. Probably, I mean, there were probably some that were a little curious, but he was being brushed off. Ridicule, mild curiosity, and a handful of converts. Verse 34, however, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others. Uh, One of the handful of converts was a a prominent man. Another was a, a fairly apparently prominent woman. Luke is showing us again. He's reaching various structures in the culture, various people. So, Michael, that was all somewhat interesting i guess what is the point well remember what i told you at the beginning the gospel is for everyone and we must be prepared to share in an increasingly pagan and hostile world let's take some evangelism lessons quickly from what paul did here first of all he was aggravated but he was controlled He walked around Athens and he saw the lostness. And it hurt him. He had paroxysms of anger. How could they be so lost? How could they be so confused? That is nothing short of what we should feel when we look around our country and our world and we see the lostness. And it should hurt us. And it should anger us. But we should be controlled. He was not politically correct when he presented the gospel to them. He was not following uh, uh, the... He, he, he wasn't kowtowing to them. He wasn't making them feel good about their sin. But he was loving and polite. Y'all, as the world becomes increasingly hostile toward Christians, Christians must become increasingly loving the world. The gospel is not a bludgeon. The gospel is not a a knife to cut somebody with because we don't like their politics or their philosophies. And I'm going to step on a little bit of my toes, but I've gotten a lot better at this uh, lately, but I'm going to try to step on some other toes. The politics on social media The face of a congresswoman and a donkey and saying, gee, I wonder where she came from, has got to stop from Christians. I'm just going to lay it out there. We can disagree politically, but we have no, no, no right to share the gospel uh, with someone that we compare to an animal. And you're certainly not earning that right. We have got to change our tone in life. As the world becomes increasingly hostile toward Christians, we do not become increasingly hostile toward them. And don't give me, well, they did. I don't care. Did you accept that from your children? He hit me first. We don't. Who are you responsible for? You. Not anybody else. Yeah, I'm on a soapbox right now. It's in my notes. I mean, I'm planning this, but I'm on a soapbox. It has got to stop. We lose our gospel initiative. We lose our opportunity at evangelism when we make the sort of comments that I'm seeing on social media in the political realm. And that goes, and I'm going to say it out loud, and I don't care who disagrees with me, that goes right up to the pulpit of First Baptist Church Dallas. The sort of things that are being said by certain people cannot stand if we think we're going to get an audience with the world to share the gospel. They don't like what we have to say anyway. Can the gospel not be an offense enough without Christians being more offensive too? They do not know us. Jesus didn't say they would know us by our hatred. And folks, I'm talking about among brothers and sisters. I'm talking about Christians disagreeing over things and having pastors of churches call Christians who don't, don't agree with him morons, panty wasted effeminate, because they don't agree politically? Off the soapbox. Paul is aggravated, he's angry, but he is controlled. He, you notice in his sermon, there's no history of Israel. Why? Paul, why aren't you talking about the expectation of the Messiah? Paul would say, the Athenians had no expectation of the Messiah. The pagan world does not care about our Old Testament scriptures. The pagan world does not care about our New Testament scriptures. So Paul begins with where they are. No history of Israel. Notice that he makes no scripture quotation in his sermon. Who does he quote? Pagan Greek philosophers. That's who he quotes. Paul, that's not a good sermon. Um, I think it is. Because what we do see is fundamental biblical themes in his message. Monotheism, creation, accountability, judgment. Paul was moving from where they are to the cross. Now, he didn't get there, did he? He talked about resurrection. He didn't get to talk about Jesus because they said... All right, he's off his nut. It's time to go. This guy, we'll hear you later, Paul. And some people, after talking to him probably a little bit more, and him getting to tell them it's it's about Jesus, explaining who Jesus was, they, oh, yeah, it makes sense. He moved from where they are to the cross. Paul went to the pagan world, and he said, Pagan world, I know you don't believe a thing I believe. I know that these ideas are so foreign to you, I might as well be speaking English. It's English to them, right? I might as well be talking in some about planets and, and, and Martians as far as you're concerned. But pagan world, I'm going to do everything I can to get the correct message to you, politically incorrect though it may be, but in a loving and polite Manner One more time, the gospel is for everyone and we must be prepared to share in an an increasingly hostile and pagan world. And as the world becomes increasingly hostile toward Christians, Christians must be increasingly loving to the world. That's all we can do. And that's what we should do. This morning, the gospel is for you, though. We may not have any abject pagans in here this morning. But we got somebody who's never trusted Jesus Christ as their savior. Someone who has put hope in works, in idols, in stone. Not literally, but figuratively. The gospel is for you. God loves you. We don't have to go back to creation because chances are you've heard some of this before. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. But you are sinful. Man is sinful. And we are separated from God. and Therefore, we can't know and experience God's love or plan. We just can't do it. We are separated from him. But Jesus Christ, God's only provision for man's sin, it is through him that you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. And that is the only provision way to do it through one man Paul would say proven through the resurrection of the dead and we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives then we can have salvation you may be offended by my gospel and people are but as believers may they never be offended By us being jerks. So I pray this morning. That if the church has wounded you. If a Christian has wounded you. And has turned you off from the gospel. This morning hear the gospel from Jesus Christ. Hear the gospel from the lips of Paul. Hear the gospel from God's word. And respond to it. Because the gospel is for you. Let's pray. Father thank you. Lord, that in our weakness you are strong, in our failures you are correct. And Lord, even when we have messed up, you provide reconciliation. And Lord, we all, every one of us, have far too often responded to the lostness of the world with anger, paroxysms, and hatred and not love and the gospel. Lord, we know that Paul never watered down his message. He was clear on the resurrection. He was clear on what needed to be done. But Lord, may we take the lesson this morning as believers to not present any stumbling block to the gospel because of our own bitterness, sarcasm, anger, hatred. Lord, may we be ambassadors of you who loves everybody, who desires all to come to a saving knowledge of your Son. And may our lives represent that. Lord, this morning, if there's someone who has been hurt or wounded by the church and they didn't think the gospel was for them because of the wounds of the past, Lord, may they know today that the gospel is for them. Or maybe they just were unclear on the gospel, but this morning they, they got it. Lord, I pray that they would... Trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Repent from their ignorance and believe in the one who was raised from the dead. Lord, move in this place this morning as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, that gospel that's for you is a gospel you need to respond to. It's for your life. What do you need to do this morning? You can come over here to my right, talk to Tom. You can come and talk to me. I'll be on my left. Uh, Pray with us. uh, Prayer rails are open if you want to do that. But let's stand. And let's sing in this time of response and let God work on you as you do business with him this morning.